We're in our study that we're calling God-fearing men, and tonight we're going to be looking at uh, Timothy, and we're going to be in 2 Timothy. Timothy, as you know, was a young pastor, a man who had been uh, uh, greatly influenced by Paul. Paul referred to him as uh, as his son, spiritually speaking. I, 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 I never cease to marvel at the relevance of the Word of God. I mean, for right now, where we are, it is as meaningful and significant, significant and applicable, uh, actually, more than anything else, you could be reading, you could be studying. We found that in Daniel. We're going to find it again tonight in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, Paul is in prison under Nero in Rome. He's been there before, uh, five, six years before, perhaps. But his circumstances in Rome... The, there was light persecution, not, but not heavy, in his previous imprisonment. He had some freedom. If you read the closing chapters of the book of Acts, he recounts his time in Rome. He had appealed to Caesar, and he had some leeway. He could stay with some friends, and, you know, it was um, the equivalent of an ankle bracelet kind of thing, although he was chained to a Roman soldier, but he had some freedom. In 2 Timothy, it's different because Nero has completely lost his mind, is uh, tyrannizing Christians, persecuting Christians, using them as torches every night to light up the boulevard on the way to his palace, burning them alive, throwing them to the lions. Paul knows he's at the end of his life, and uh, he's writing to... uh, to Timothy, the context is uh, they're in extremely difficult times. There and, and there's been a shift. Um, there's been a shift from his last imprisonment to where they are right now. In other words, the heat's been turned up. The um, the dangers are, are have become greater, and there are very real threats. And Paul is going to be beheaded by Nero and will get his eternal promotion. And his, his model was to live as Christ, to die as gain. So he wasn't real worried about it. In fact, he wasn't worried at all. It was, he was looking forward to that promotion day. He had said in Philippians, it's far better, it's far better to be with the Lord. So that's the background of 2 Timothy. It's the, it's the idea of, of difficult days. It's the idea that persecution is here with us and it's going to increase. That's the idea. Now, I'm going to take this on through the back door. I, I've got an outline But I'm not going to just immediately deal with it. I want to come in through a back door. Let me go ahead and give you our our outline for tonight. Uh, Three points. First point is this. God-fearing men need God-fearing women. You see, that's in 2 Timothy? Yeah, it is. We'll get there. Second point. God-fearing men must learn from older men. God-fearing men must learn from older men. Third point. God-fearing men must influence younger men. I want to begin tonight with a article from Tim Challies 
Uh, interesting title on this article. The article is entitled, One of the Ugliest Sights in the World. One of the Ugliest Sights in the World. Challies writes, one of the ugliest sights in the world is that of a child who rules over his parents. We've all seen it, I'm sure. We've seen parents who tiptoe around their child's cries, their child's demands, their child's outburst of anger. They will do whatever he dictates, give whatever he commands. We look on with horror, knowing that they have set their child on a path of destruction. Children are born foolish. They desire the things that will ruin them, crave the things that will harm them, long for the things that will destroy them. It is the task of loving parents to help their children grow in wisdom, and wisdom comes through both giving and denying, giving what is good and denying what is harmful. Parents must love their children enough to deny them their desires, enough to often say a firm no. Parents must love their children enough to save them from themselves. Charles continues, he says, We are children of God and often as foolish as toddlers. And even when we are not full-blown foolish, we are always limited in ways God is not. We're limited in our knowledge. We're limited in our grasp of the world, limited in the wide scope of God's providence. He is the Father, we're the kids. Yet he is not a cold and distant father or one who rules without our input, without accounting for our hopes, our longings, our preferences. Rather, he invites us to pray to him and to make our desires known. Our Father in heaven, we pray, let us never lose the wonder of addressing the God of all the universe as Father, our Father, my Father. Yet as we address God as Father, we must not behave like children who are peevish or petulant. We must not make demands. We must not level accusations or provide ultimatums. We must always pray that God's will will be done, that God's wisdom will be showcased, that God's glory will be displayed. We must pray with an awareness of our own short-sightedness, of our own feeble understanding. Our purpose in prayer is not so much to get God to cede to our every whim, but to better align our will with his. We, not he, are the ones who are changed through prayer. One more paragraph. One of the ugliest sights in the world is that of a child who rules over his parents. But ahead of even that is the sight of human beings who believe they have the right to rule over their God who erupt in anger, who are insistent, who demand that God do things their way. They ought to know that the gap between their knowledge and God's is infinitely greater than the gap between the knowledge of a toddler and that of an adult. They ought to trust that the good Father will provide what they need, what they would ask for if they knew all that he knows, if they were perfectly unfolding a plan so great, so wondrous, so perfect as his. One of the old Puritan pastors said, God has answered every prayer I ever prayed. He either gave me what I asked for, or he gave me what I should have asked for. That's the idea that's here. We don't know what's best. Toddlers don't know what's best. And how foolish to let a child, as they grow up, dictate and walk on eggshells around them. That's utter chaos. It's, it's, it's horrific. It's against Scripture. It's to the detriment of that child. I think it's safe to say that where we are right now in our country, in this world, is not what most of us as Christian men would have chosen. And we wish it wasn't the way that it is, but it is the way that it is because it was the plan of God. If you believe in his sovereignty, you know that he raises up kings and he sets them down. 
He runs the nations. He rules the nations. The nations are like a drop in the bucket. Isaiah 40, they are meaningless and void. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. He's calling the shots. He runs the world. Yes, there's evil. Yes, there's sin. God's never the author of evil. That's impossible because he's absolutely holy. But God uses evil like a tool on a Swiss army knife. God uses evil to bring to his people ultimate good and to glorify his name. Now, that's a whole big discussion for another time. But that's who God is, and that's how the scriptures represent him. He is absolutely good. He is absolutely holy. He is absolutely just. God cannot be unjust. It is impossible. When you see something that you don't like, and you start to accuse God, just know you're wrong. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? Yes, it's his character. He can't help but do what's right. He cannot do evil. He cannot sin. He cannot be unjust. He can't do it. So when we find ourselves in situations that we would prefer not to be in, we have to take a step back and say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do we always understand it? No. Do we necessarily like it? No. Do we need to back up and think it through before we open our mouths? Yes. We need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. We tend to flip those don't we? Like toddlers. The context of 2 Timothy 3, and let's turn there. Here's, here's the context that uh, Timothy found himself in. It wasn't the best news in the world. Again, Paul is already in prison in 2 Timothy 3, but realize this, he says to young Timothy, the pastor, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, censoring Christians on Twitter, irreconcilable. Actually, I, 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 I made that up. It's not in the original. But everything else certainly fits with where we are and with those other things. I just thought I'd wake you up a little bit, see if you're paying attention. Does this not sound like our days? Unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal. Haters of good, haters of good, they hate it, hate it. Treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Holding to a form of godliness. Yeah, that's putting your hand on a big family Bible and swearing an oath. You don't want to do that unless you intend on living it out. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? Yeah. And he'll do it in his way, and he'll do it in his time. It's true for any of us. It's true for all of us. For among, those, among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So you hear about some wonderful Christian leader who's had a great impact, really solid in the truth, and then you find out there's a trail of sexual immorality. Well, in the last days, difficult times will come. I mean, it's shocking, 
But when that happens, it, it really, it's, it's shocking, it's stunning, but Jesus told us that was gonna happen. And he told us, time and time and time again. That's why you never put men on a pedestal. We lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. We look to him. Jesus has never disappointed anyone. Jesus, they were with him day and night, 24-7, three years. He was exhausted, he was tired. Boy, that when you're exhausted and tired, that's when the sin nature comes out. They never saw sin, ever, ever, because he was without sin. Everyone else is flawed, everyone else is a sinner. So we don't put our trust in men. We put our trust in the Lord. He'll never disappoint you. Uh, eight, just as Janus and Jambre has opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambre's folly was also. Now watch this. Now you followed, he's talking to Timothy. Timothy, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra. Incredible persecutions. You see the, uh, the flippancy of a crowd. You see the flippancy of a mob where Paul did a healing and they're, they're going to worship him as a god. And within an hour, they're stoning him to death. You know, that's the problem with mob rule. It, uh, you never know which way it's going. But with mob rule, know this, they're eventually coming for you. It doesn't matter if you're the founder of the mob. They eat their own. They're cannibals. Uh, you know what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Now, here we go. Watch 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. For a long time in America, that wasn't true. We were kind of the exception in the history of Christianity. But that has flipped. Now watch this, verse 13. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived. So, is it going to get better tomorrow? No. It's going to get worse. And it's just going to keep getting worse. Now, I'm sorry to report this, but it's what it says. And it doesn't just say it here, it's in other portions of Scripture. This is confronting the brutal facts, is what it is. It's not living in la-la land. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. Yeah, so what do, what do we do if it's going to get worse? And what do we do with all this difficulty? And what do we do with this danger? Well, as opposed to the evil men, you, however, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. We'll come back to that verse. And that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So, Charlie's, I think was right, one of the ugliest sights in the world is that of a child who rules over his parents. It's pretty common in, in, uh, in our times. What the scriptures teach about raising children uh, have been ignored. We have embraced uh, not the wisdom of God, we've embraced the wisdom of men, which is completely different. We've embraced, in terms of raising children, psychologists, they're the new priest. They're the new uh, priest. They're the priest of the new religion, of secularism. Uh, so we run to see what the latest psychologist has to say. 
but all they have is the wisdom of men, not the wisdom of God. Um, so there's, a, there's, there's much leniency with children. The, the dictates, Proverbs is a book of, uh, it's part of the section of scripture we call wisdom literature. And it talks about appropriate discipline, appropriate spanking. It talks about rebuke. It talks about, uh, it says discipline your son while there's hope. among a lot of other things. So it's true, one of the ugliest sights in the world is when a child rules over his parents. But we've had this now for a long time in America. Uh, instead of children being disciplined, they are uh, idolized. They are worshipped. They, um, they are given a status they should not be given. They become the... Uh, the focus of the family. They're not the focus of the family. They're members of the family. Uh, they are not little gods. They're not little idols. When they're wrong, they're wrong. And just as God does with us, as we just read, all scriptures inspired by God, profitable for teaching, children are to be taught. And they're to be taught the word of God and the principles of the world. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for, profitable for teaching, for correction. God corrects us. When I sin, when I violate his moral command, I know it. He corrects me. I know I'm wrong. Holy Spirit convicts me. A parent is to convict his child. So all scripture is profitable for teaching reproof. God reproves me when I sin. And I know that I've sinned. There'll be a flick on my conscience. I know it's wrong. I know what I did was wrong. And that's what a parent is to do with a child when they sin. And you don't overlook it and you don't dismiss it and say, oh, they're so cute. No, you, you deal with it. You reprove them so that they can be corrected. They've gotten off the path you reprove them that they're off the path. You correct them on to back to where they should be. You train them in righteousness. But you see, it's amazing to me in the evangelical world how many Christian people truly don't believe that their children have a sin nature. They basically believe everyone's good. They've bought into the secular system because they've been through the secular education. They've drank the Kool-Aid. They really don't believe what the scripture says about the human heart. Jesus said, out of the heart comes evil. It's in us. So children have to be disciplined and they have to be corrected. When they're not, and we have a generation who have not been corrected. We've had a generation who, oh, they, uh, they do something wrong and you give them a trophy. They, you, they, they do something wrong and you excuse it, you rationalize it. When a child does something wrong, uh, they're to be corrected swiftly. You deal with it. Um, not out of anger, you don't lose your, you're not out of control, you're under control. But you deal with it. It's swift, it's quick, it's over. I remember my dad he would take his belt off. And he would, you know, take it off. And I said, Daddy, I'm really sorry. I, I'm, no, Dad, I'm really sorry. He said, well, I, I told you, didn't I, not to do that. <laughs> yeah? He said, come over here. Daddy, I'm really sorry. I promise I won't do it again. This is embarrassing. I'm 19 years old. <laughs> I've been telling that story for a long time. And uh, he wasn't mad, he wasn't angry, he wasn't out of control, he wasn't crazy, he wasn't drunk. He was real sober. It wasn't that bad, he wasn't gonna hurt me, he loved me. Couple swats in the butt. Don't do that, don't do that. You can't live like that, Steve. You give him a couple swats in the butt and then I'd hold his leg, why? 
because they loved him. And then he picked me up. And it was over. Okay. You all right? Yep, okay. Where's the ball? Let's go throw some passes. Okay, everything's good. I've been reproved. I've been corrected. I've been trained in righteousness. Let's go play football. That's life. Here's what happens with spoiled children. And I want you to think about the group that we call millennials. Uh, You know, you can break it down into subgroups, but the millennials are those who are coming to adulthood in, in right now, in the early part of this century. Um, Spoiled children who grow up thinking that they are the center of the universe think more highly of themselves than they should. And I'll tell you something else, and we're making generalizations about a generation that has not been disciplined, that has not been spanked, that has not been um, corrected, that has not been trained in righteousness, that has been coddled, that has been uh, excused, that has been given permission to be immature, that they're, they're saved from the consequences of what they have done. Their parents step in and make sure they don't get hurt. That doesn't work. And here's what's happened, and we're watching it right now. Spoiled children who grew up thinking that they are the center of the universe, listen to this, do not listen to the wisdom of older generations. Nor do they realize the current spiritual danger that surrounds them and threatens their well-being. They don't recognize it. Now, I'm going to get back to this outline. I'm circling the airport. I'm going to land soon. A former CIA agent, Jason Hansen, has written a book with a uh, a unique title, Spy Secrets That Can Save Your Life. And I'll just give you one secret. This first one is situational awareness is the basic first step that enables you to execute all other survival skills effectively. He's got a bunch of principles. But situational awareness is the basic first step that enables you to execute all other survival skills effectively. To this day, Hansen has never sent a text message and he has never owned a smartphone. One of the most vital skills the CIA teaches its operatives is situational awareness. It's a kind of survival intelligence that allows people to stay safe simply by paying attention to what's happening in the moment. I saw a video clip today of a woman in, um, is it Minamar? Which used to be called Burma. I'll probably just call it Burma. Uh, But Minamar, she's doing a yoga class online. And she's into it. She's out on the balcony of her apartment. Behind her is a major highway. And as she is live streaming her yoga class, there is a military coup and the trucks and the tanks are moving on the highway towards the Capitol behind her. And she is absolutely oblivious to what is going on. Somewhat ironic. May we say she was somewhat deficient in her situational awareness. There are different levels of awareness which can be delineated uh, using the Cooper color code, a schema of white, yellow, orange, and red conditions that a former World War II Marine, Jeff Cooper, developed. Condition white is a state of total obliviousness. Most people spend the majority of their time in condition white, daydreaming, engrossed in conversation, reading a book, or texting. The person's head is down. Vision is unfocused. Immediate surroundings are unknown. You know exactly what this is about. They're just honed in. 
That's the lady on the, on the balcony. Condition yellow is a calm alertness. It's not a state of hypervigilance that tries to anticipate a threat at every turn. Rather, it's an ongoing data collection process that takes stock of people and surroundings. It's living with your eyes open, the way most people lived before cell phones were ubiquitous. Uh, even if you're engaged in conversation, you're not so enraptured that you fail to notice the strangely dressed man walking your way or the car slowly pulling up. I remember walking um, down the steps of my high school after staying late for uh, some kind of basketball practice. And uh, as I was getting my books out of my locker, nobody was in that building. I'm getting my books. I didn't take them with me. I had to go from the gym back to my locker in the classroom area. I grab it, and as I'm walking down that hall, just as I'm coming to the door, this guy opens the door, who's probably 30, 35, pretty rough-looking guy. And... Uh, Passed me, didn't say anything, didn't look at me. And then as I go out the door, he goes in. Within 30 seconds, a high school girl, 16 or 17, she comes walking very fast by me into that door, into that building. And uh, she's obviously late for something or is, you know. So anyway, I keep walking, I'm gonna walk home. And probably two minutes later, <clears throat> it was like, I gotta run back there. And I did. And I ran all the way down that, it was a big building, I ran all the way down that hall, past my locker, I went out the back doors, and I could see that guy pulling her by her hair into a storage shed. And I, it was 60 yards away, and I just yelled, hey, just like that. He didn't see me. He dropped her. He ran. She got up. She ran. I ran. <laughs> it was just one of those moments. I mean, she was safe. He that went that She went that way. Got home, called the school. School was closed, nobody was there. That was kind of a condition yellow situation. Even if you're engaged in conversation, you're not so enraptured that you fail to notice what's around you. Condition orange is alertness to something particular. Why is this person wearing a heavy coat in the middle of summer? You get it. Condition red is the state of crisis and confrontation. You're ready for fight or flight. You get it. There are levels of threat. <clears throat> Spoiled children who are now millennials, even if they're Christians, show a remarkable blindness to the spiritual threat that is around them. They don't see it. Now, I'm making generalities here. Some do see it. The majority of them don't. And what happens is this comes out in conversations. This comes out in discussions, family discussions. That probably every family represented here has a tremendous amount of adversity right now because there are different takes on the political situation in this country. Now, maybe you raised your children according to biblical principles, but they married someone who wasn't raised that way. And they've been influenced. I don't know. But I, I'm, I'm making an observation because this is so pervasive right now among Christian families, this fissure. And there are two things that are coming out of this. Because they're spoiled because they haven't been disciplined, because they haven't felt the results of their sin, of their 
refusal to obey and to comply, and everything they do is special. Everything is, they're wonderful. And you don't want to hurt their self-esteem. You don't want to cause any guilt, any shame. Actually, you, you do. Because if they're guilty, they need to know they're guilty. And they also need to know that guilt can be forgiven. <clears throat> but when we go away from Scripture, what happens is they grow up with this perception that they are, they, they believe what you told them. They believe they're special. They believe they're so special, they're the most special generation in the history of the world, and they're so special that they do not listen to an older generation because what does the older generation know? The older generation has told them they're more special than anyone else in the history of the world. So why listen to the older generation? So they don't listen, generally speaking. And they don't see the spiritual danger because, so what do they do when they need wisdom? What do they do when they have a major decision to make? Who do they go to? Historically, you go to people with more experience. You go to a father, you go to a mother, you go to a grandpa, you go to someone at work who you respect their life, you go to someone at church, you go to someone who has more experience, who's lived longer, not this generation. They seek wisdom and counsel, not from anyone older, they seek wisdom and counsel from their peers who have been told by their parents that they're as special and as, as much a genius as anybody else. They all think they're geniuses. They all think they have ultimate wisdom. And that's, that's where they get wisdom. The problem with that is that Proverbs 13, 20 says, he who walks with wise men will be wise. And if you're 25... You're not wise because you haven't lived long enough. You've got, um, you've got some wisdom if you're seeking the Lord, but you haven't had enough experience on the trail of life. And we all start out young. But in order to learn about life and the truth of life and the lessons of life, you've got to have some failure, you've got to have some setbacks, you've got to have some pain, You've got to feel the consequences of your wrong choices. And you've got to come to grips with the fact that you're not as special as you've been told that you are. What needs to happen in your life is that because of the condition that is in your heart, which is pride and which is hubris, Romans 12 says, don't think higher of yourself than you should. Millennials tend to think higher of themselves than they should. And when I was young, a young buck. I thought higher of myself than I should. So God signed me up for about a three-year course, even as a young pastor in the school of disappointment. I've talked about it before. And he just pretty much shut me down. And I went through a, I went through a very deep depression because I thought too highly of myself. And I'd make, I'd make decisions without really consulting not, not always. I did consult some older men at times, but not all the time. I, uh, apart from you, I can do nothing. And God has put us in a body of believers, and he has put older believers, and the older are to teach the younger. Is this making any sense? And what happens right now in families... What, what happens, this split that's going on in families is that adult children do not see the spiritual danger that's right in front of their eyes, generally speaking. They don't see it. They cannot comprehend it. They, can't, they cannot see it. And because you do see it, they think something's wrong with you. And it's, there's a lot of tension in families right now. So what do we do? Well, Paul's going to tell Timothy what to do. And this is what we do. Um, let's go to the outline now. Okay? God-fearing men, number one, need God-fearing women. Uh, if you go back to 2 Timothy, right out of the blocks... And, and we're doing a helicopter of this book, 
obviously not taking it in depth verse by verse. But in the opening verses, we see some interesting information. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved son. Now, Timothy had a father, but his dad was not a believer. He's mentioned in Acts 16, verse 1. So Paul was Timothy's spiritual dad. It's really important. They had a very tight, close relationship. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. See, he needed all three things because of what was going on. They were frightening times. They were scary times. Nero was in charge, killing Christians right and left. Well, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to, you know, we think about this. What's going to happen to my kids? Where is this, where's this going? What's going to happen to my grandkids? Yeah, so what do we need? We need grace, we need mercy, and we need peace. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. All right, just a quick comment. God-fearing men have clear consciences. Doesn't mean they don't sin. But when you sin, what do you do with it? You confess it. First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when you sin and the Lord flicks your nerve of conscience, you don't uh, deny it. You don't hide it. You don't cover it. You don't ignore it. You don't rationalize it. You deal with it. Because the longer you deny it and rationalize it and cover it up, the more your conscience is going to get hard. And you want your conscience tender before the living God. Just keep real short accounts with it. If he, if you, if he hits that nerve of conscience, confess it. Deal with it. Uh, in Psalm 51... David has sinned with Bathsheba and you see his repentance and it's deep repentance. Um, the old Puritan um, Thomas Watson used to say repentance is the vomiting of the soul. It, it's not a uh, it's not a Clintonian uh, I'm sorry. It's not a fake. It's not a fraud. If you're, if you're a young guy, you don't know what I'm talking about. But a double standard. You know, you're a governor, and you just happen to join the largest church in the state, and you happen to be in the choir right behind the pulpit every Sunday in Little Rock. And you're singing all the hymns because you know them all by heart. And... Uh, you're strutting around the city in the dark of night every night. That's what you're doing. And nobody knew who he was, and then suddenly people knew who he was. He was living a double life. He's always lived a double life. He even has three Christian advisors at a certain point, because it was politically strategic to do so. Christian advisors. And one of them turned out to be a sexual predator, even though he had the largest church in the United States. So a lot of this is show. You know, here's God-fearing men are sinners. We're all sinners, right? We all fall short of the all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But you confess it. When you confess it, when you turn from it, uh, David said. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgression. My sin's ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. Look at six. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. That's what God wants. He wants truth in the innermost being. Don't lie about it. Come clean. Don't lead a double life. You can be sure your sin will find you out. 
Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Lord, I lo- I've sinned greatly, but I love you, Lord. I, I regret it. I-, I-, I vomit my sin. That's a God-fearing man. Okay. Back to 2 Timothy. We're going to see here that we, we've, got, we've got some more background here on Timothy's life. He says in verse 4, I long to see you as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. Now watch this. I'm mindful of the sincere faith. There you go. Sincere faith. Not fake faith. Sincere faith. I am mindful of the sincere faith. A sincere, sincere faith loves God. It obeys God. When you don't obey God, you confess your sin. I'm aware of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Timothy, who was a God-fearing young man, benefited from two God-fearing women. Any God-fearing man needs God-fearing women in his life. He had a godly grandmother. Now, they, they, were the, they were Jewish people, but at a certain point, they realized Jesus was the Messiah. Same of his mom. He was raised and disciplined according to the scriptures. You see, by God-fearing women. We don't know anything about his dad. We don't know how much time he had with his father. We don't know. His dad was an unbeliever. But Paul comes along at a certain point. Boys need godly women in their life. But boys also need godly men in their lives. We all know that. You can read all the studies. I read some this morning. You talk about sad. When there's not a strong male godly influence in the life of a boy... And in the life of a young lady. So, (laughs) I thank God for two godly grandmothers who prayed for me before I was born. I thank God for a, a godly mother. I thank God for a godly wife. By the way, my godly mother, along with my dad, who was a God fearing man, they believed in the book of Proverbs. Not only did my dad discipline me, but my mom disciplined me. Uh, my mom, at times, she was very creative. <clears throat> She'd take me in the bathroom because I had learned to say uh, some really, really horrible words, apparently, from that kid down the street. And I said, it's his fault. I mean, and, uh, and she, she would... But she took me into the bathroom and took a bar of soap and she, she put it in my mouth. Now today you'd be, I mean, that's, I mean, the government's coming to arrest you. Yeah, I didn't say that word again. It was extremely effective. That, that soap was 99 and 44 one hundredths pure, as I believe, as I recall, and even apparently it had a spiritual dimension to it. <clears throat> I remember my mom, out, she'd go out back, she said, you go out there and get that, just get a little branch, a little switch. And I'd go get a little switch, and then she'd just... <laughs> took care of it. If you're a young guy, and you're thinking about marriage, find a God-fearing woman. You, you don't need to find a beauty queen with synthetic breast. You need a God-fearing woman who loves Christ, will love you, is under the authority of Scripture, wants to raise children according to the Word of God. And together you do it. Together you make mistakes. You cry together. You pray together. You confess your sin to each other. It's marriage. You disappoint each other. Then you really love each other. Then you can't stand her. It's marriage.
It's good stuff. You, you get what I'm saying. If you have uh, a God-fearing mother, if you have a God-fearing wife, you're blessed. If you have uh, any God-fearing woman in your life, it's to your great benefit. We value women like that. We thank God for them. Second point of the outline, God-fearing men listen to older men. God-fearing men listen to older men. Uh, Go down to 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Paul says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now let me say this to you. This is the assignment of every Christian guy in this room. This is not just for pastors. This is your job as a man who is following the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if, um, if you sell insurance. It doesn't matter if you dig ditches. It doesn't matter... If you're a pastor, it doesn't matter. If you're a Christian man, God-fearing man, serious about your faith, this, this should describe your life. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. The things which you have heard from me. So in other words, you're open. You're teachable. You've got a spirit of learning. Not of having arrived. Not of having it all together, not of superiority, but you know that, in fact, not only do you know, but you should be seeking. I, I, will, I will tell you, I can still remember seeking out guys when I was 20. Now, did I always do this? No, and I said sometimes I'd get ahead of the Lord, and I did, and I didn't get wise counsel, but as the years have gone by, I pray before I send emails. And I'm not kidding you. Not every email, but if it's of any significance, I don't just and hit send. I'm going to pray over that email. I might even wait on it overnight to make sure that's what I should be saying. I do not want to get ahead of the Lord. I've learned that the hard way. But I remember in my 20s, Talking to, I can remember two different men that were in their 40s, and they had had an influence on my life because of their walk with Christ, and I pursued them and was able to spend some time with them. And I wanted to find out what made them tick, and I wanted to ask them questions. And I was very fortunate I got some time with them. I wasn't just talking to my peers. I looked around at my peers, and quite frankly, they didn't know what they were doing, most of them. Why should I ask those guys? I got a huge decision to make. Why should, see here's the deal, life is a trail. And it's a very long trail. And if you're 20 or 25 or 30 or whatever you are, you wanna talk to someone who's 10 to 15 years further down the trail than you've ever been. Because you don't know what's, so, so let's say this. You're going, you know, 150 years ago, you're going out west, you're gonna homestead, and. You're looking for a new country and all of that, and you're thinking about going, you know, Colorado up, Wyoming. You know, you're thinking about that, and you've never been up there before. And what you do is you just head out, and you're looking around, and you see this old guy coming your way, and he's riding a horse, and he's about 25 years older than you are. And you know, hey, how you doing? I'm John Coulter. And you tell him your name. John Coulter was the first white guy to ever go into Yellowstone. Well, that's what you're thinking about going. So it would be wise to ask John Coulter as many questions as you could. Where are the water holes on the way? What, what's going on with the tribes? Who's hostile right now? Who's peaceful? What's the best way up there? What do I avoid? You know what I'm talking about. In life, hey, if you're going on a fishing trip in Montana and you've never been down a river before, it makes sense to hire a guide who's been down it 300 times. Does that make sense? But see, if you've got a millennial mindset, you're, only gonna ask, you're just going to ask someone who's a peer. That is foolishness. You want someone who's older. You want someone who's wiser. 
You want someone who has experience. You want someone who's had a broken heart. You want someone who's had mistakes and has learned from them and is walking with the Lord and they've got a life that is congruent and makes sense. And you respect them because of their walk. Now, that's who you want to talk to. And the older you get, those guys who have been in your life, they're gone. And I've had some great ones. And most, most of them are with the Lord. So in the morning, I'm up early listening to Martin Lloyd-Jones give a sermon from 1954 at Westminster Chapel in London. And they apologized for the quality of the recording because, as the guy said in his English accent, this broadcast was recorded on paper tape. Went paper tape? What the heck is paper tape? Anyway, that's what it was recorded on. Somehow they pulled it off. But I could sit there at 71 and listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones from 1954. And he helped me that morning. You see. God-fearing men can learn from older men. But there's a flip side. So see, as Howard Hendricks used to say, you need a Paul in your life. And then he would say, and you need a Timothy in your life, which is the next principle. God-fearing men are to influence younger men. Yeah, you need a Paul, but you also need a Timothy. You need to be pouring into somebody's life. Let's look at this again. The things you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There are guys coming up. So you ought to be on the lookout for young men in your life. Um, you're 10, 15 years older, perhaps, than they are. You say, I don't know who that would be. We'll look around. Gosh, they might be a grandson. You see? And they just want to, hey, man, they'd love to hang out with their papa. Well, take them down and get them donuts. You know, get them heartburn. Just take them out, have fun, talk to them. Just hang out with them a little bit. You're just, you're just with. You're just with. The key, the key word in fathering, the key word in mentoring is with. You see it in Jesus. He was always with the 12. If he went across the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, they were with him. If they went up to Capernaum, they were with him. If they went to Jerusalem, they were with him. And they were always asking him stupid questions. But he answered them. He was with. That's the key. And if you look around, I mean, you shouldn't, as you get older, you shouldn't be bored with life. You need to be active. And maybe you change what you do. And maybe you don't have as much energy as you used to have. That just goes with the territory. You get miles on your tires, and you know what? Shocks, struts, you know, you start having issues, all that stuff. But you, you still got stuff to offer, so offer it. make a huge difference in a young man's life. You don't always have to pull, I don't know that much about the Bible. Well, you know some. And you know the Lord? Well, I'm afraid they'll ask me a question I don't know. Well, they will. So what do you do? You say, you know, that's a great question. Let me go, uh, let me go check that out. I'll get back to you. So then check it out and get back to them. It'll be good for you. You see? But this is real life. I, I, I want you back, if you would, back again to 2 Timothy 3. And we'll, we'll close this out here. We're, we're living in very... I will tell you this. Uh, there are a lot of young men who get this and they're worried. I said a lot of them didn't see the danger. Uh, that's true, but there are a significant number who do see the danger, and they are worried, and they're worried sick about the future for themselves and for their kids and for their grandkids. They don't even have grandkids yet. We're worried about the grandkids. So what do we say to them? I've had three young guys, and when I say young, I mean right around 40. 40, in my mind, I remember when that was old. 40 is now young. Young guys are 40. Oh, it's whippersnappers. 
You know, I mean, what do they know? They're 40. Well, they know a lot. They're halfway through life. I've had three guys in their 40s in the last 10 days say to me, I am extremely concerned about the future and what's happening in this country. And I'm concerned not only about me, I'm concerned about my kids. I'm not sure they're ever going to have the freedoms that I had. I'm not sure they're ever going to get them back. What do you think about that? I said, I agree. But I'll tell you this. God wanted you alive right now. He wanted your kids alive right now. None of this is a shock. None of this, this stuns us. It doesn't stun him. This is part of his plan. Every generation has had their excruciating and painful challenges. Every generation. So I agree with your, I I think you're very astute. They're probably not going to have the freedoms that you had because there is a... um, there is a, a, an incredibly swift movement to remove those freedoms. Well then, so what, what do I do? What do I do? Well, what you do is 2 Timothy three fourteen. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and became, become convinced of knowing from whom you've learned them. Uh, In Timothy's case, from childhood, you've known the sacred words which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. and, And what he's talking about is you continue in the scriptures. You continue following Christ. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. He's not stunned. He's not shocked. He's got something in mind. What you don't want to do is get angry. What you don't want to do is become a spoiled child yourself. What you don't want to do is start questioning the wisdom of God. I can't believe it turned out this way. I can't believe... Just... Just... (laughs) Well, just do what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 verse... Was it 7? God has not given us a spirit of fear. He doesn't want you living out of fear right now. Does the future, is it, are we going to have the political freedom we've had in the past? Probably not. I mean, that's kind of all the indicators. But God has not given us a spirit of fear. He doesn't want me living in tyranny of fear, the tyranny of fear. There's the tyranny of government. There's a tyranny of fear. God's not given me a spirit of fear, but that of power. That's the power of God. Paul was persecuted. Read the book of Acts. God got him through it, amazingly, until it was his moment to die, and then he went to be with the Lord. You can't forget the power of God. Well, I might get canceled. We talked about this last week. I might get canceled. I, lo- I might lose my job. Yeah. And does not God have the power to give you income in a way that you never thought or imagined so that you can feed and provide your family what you need to do as an honorable Christian man? Yes. He promises, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. So see, this is a matter of learning to trust him. He's not giving me a spirit of fear, but a power. You think about the power of God. Not a spirit of fear, but a power and love. How much does he love me? He sent his son to die for me. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Nothing. And then he goes on and says, God's not giving me a spirit of fear, but that of power and love and sound thinking. He wants me to think clearly. How do I think clearly? Well, you better not close your Bible. You better keep your Bible open. And you continue in a Bible teaching church. And you associate with friends who are also Christ followers and you rub off of each other and you encourage one another in the word of God and you've got some older folks in your life that you don't despise but that you pay attention to and you listen to their wisdom and you invite their wisdom but you keep your Bible open and every morning you get up And you say, Lord Jesus, you're my shepherd. 
at the th- I'm probably repeating myself, I don't care. I know I've said this a hundred times in here. I get up in the morning and within 10 to 15 minutes, the fr- I say to myself out loud, Lamentations 321. This is how you fight off depression and fear. This I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope. Doesn't look real hopeful. Okay. Well, how do you get hope? This I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And then I take some time, and I did it this morning. I take some time, and it's just quiet. And I just think through the last 24 hours and I thank God for the mercies he gave me. I list them. I never saw that coming. I didn't know there would be that phone call. I didn't know there would be that interaction. That was a mercy. Gosh, Lord, I didn't see that yesterday at this time, but look what you did. And here I am now. I don't know what's out here in front of me today, but I'll tell you what, I thank you for what you're going to do I thank you for your steadfast love, and I thank you for your mercy. And that's how you get through it. And then I read my scriptures. You just continue. You just continue. You just continue. He's got you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for... The fact that you've never broken a promise. Help us to fight off fear by chewing mentally on your word and applying the truth to our lives and trusting you. Trusting you with everything we have. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? Indeed you will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.